welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where if you're going to waste the buzzards, you've got to do it big in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 23, which begins with Nux nimbly and narrowly dodging nasty ne'er-do-wells. And it ends with the gargantuan excavator gradually gaining ground on the war rig. When we left off on Monday, Morsov, on the back of the fuel pod, he had hooked a big one, and it was swerving around wildly. It went off to the left, it couldn't shake the line, it swung back to the right. Nux did a very deft braking maneuver, and as we start off today, the buzzer car just soars right past him. Something I noticed, especially this episode with Nux and his excellent driving, right from the beginning of Mad Max 79, Max was known for being an excellent driver. And he showed us those skills right at the beginning when facing off against the Knight Rider. And we've seen that reputation and his skills come in handy. And each time, he was the only one who could do this particular job. In this movie, that's no longer true. Furiosa is an excellent driver. Nux is an excellent driver. That's no longer a unique attribute of Max. And I think that that changes Max's character a little bit. Maybe in a good way. It forces him to branch out very much in the same way that he was forced to branch out back in Thunderdome. Yes. He couldn't focus on his ability to convey a vehicle. So here he has to focus on his incredible endurance and his ability to adapt to scenarios. Can't rely completely on being the guy behind the wheel. He also has other people to lean on. Mm -hmm. All three of them take turns driving that rig and that's the only way that they survive is by sharing that responsibility not one of them could have done that by themselves that's going to become very clear the further we go into this movie yeah so this car swerving back and forth it's trying to shake that harpoon loose it's not succeeding it goes back out to the left it comes back to the right and the second time around it does connect with nux but the big thing that happens after it hits nux is that the harpoon pulls the roof off of the buzzard car and we've seen all through last week into this week that the buzzard cars are very resilient they're very heavily armored and i'm almost disappointed in the buzzards that their roof could get pulled free like this i think that the roof getting torn off pairs with that whining engine sound from mm. Monday. The rig is just built to keep driving. It has two engines that are just ginormous. It is built to be a war machine. This little buzzard buggy is not. It was being dragged along at a pace that it could no longer sustain. That's why we heard the whining. And the difference between what the buggy could keep doing and what the war rig could keep doing was enough to rip the hood off. Yeah. Not to mention that Slit did explode part of the roof, so it might have been weakened there. But yeah, that roof comes off like tissue paper and thrown to the side. Now, granted, it's still a pretty solid object based on the amount of dust that it kicks up. But just the way it tears free so cleanly, it's actually very pretty. <laughs> just the way it <laughs> pops off, like almost like a Lego. Yeah, and it really works out in the very short term for the buggy because the top gets ripped off, and yes, that does leave them exposed, but it also exposes Morsov to what they have inside. Now, the inhabitants of the buggy have access to the outside in a way they didn't before. 
That's true. And they're no longer tethered. I'm not sure if it's shown in this minute. Maybe you noticed what happened to the roof. It's still tethered to the war rig. Theoretically, it should keep being dragged and bounced around that big pointy metal thing. It'd be awfully dangerous. Although, Morsov, he's pretty with it. I'll bet he cut it loose. Yeah, I don't see any lines connecting it to the fuel pod. I think when he saw the roof come off, the roof hit the ground, and I think it started to fracture apart. And so he probably pulled something, and then that let it go. Released it. It's pretty dangerous to have this big giant harpoon and not have a way to have a quick release. Mm -hmm. Because that could become dangerous for the war rig right quick. Exactly. So with the harpoon fired and the buggy too far away to engage with the flamethrower, Morsov picks up a javelin, and he is at a perfect angle to throw it down into the car. You look at the shot where the camera's behind him, he can just toss it out, and it'll fall right down into them. He has the high ground. He's already won. Yeah, he's in the Obi-Wan situation. Except that the buzzards happen to have a crossbow on them, and so they pop out of the top like a jack-in-the-box, and they fire... And they shoot him twice. Yep. Once in the face and then once in the uh, upper torso there. It's a double. So one shot, two hits. Yep. One hits him in the face. You can see it goes all the way through, poking out the back of his head. Now it is far enough to the side where I don't think it went through his brain per se. I don't know. It looks like it might have. Yeah. And the part that went through his upper torso it's right around the collar area like it's coming out his back off to the left of the base of his neck would you say yes yeah now it wouldn't have hit his heart but through the neck are an awful lot of really big arteries Mm -hmm. that are really important the chance that he hit one of those i think is really high yeah i fully believe the physical performance that this actor is giving where he gets hit with these things and he just crumbles because it's probably the shock response of oh my gosh two arrows have gone through my body shock and collapse the force alone would have knocked him over although they're pretty small bolts they are but can you imagine how hard those would have had to hit him to go through his body going through the bone I think would be the biggest shock to his system. Yeah. Like going through the skull, that would... I think it physically would have pushed him back. Mm. Did you notice that the music cut out when he got shot? Yes, it was sad. There is a sadness to what happens now. But there's also a resiliency and pride to what happens. Yeah. The first person we see react is Max. And he almost seems... The word that comes to mind is disappointed. But I don't think Max is necessarily rooting for these guys. He seems alternatively unimpressed. For all of their gusto and enthusiasm, they get shot once and then they go down and Max is like, ugh, whatever. Yeah. Max does have the advantage of not having anything to do in this fight. It's not like he has to keep his wits about him to keep driving well or to keep defending the rig. He's literally just standing there. And... I think he's the only one that really doesn't care. Everybody else has a job to do, but they care. We peek inside the Nux car, and he's just looking over his steering wheel. And then we cut back to the fuel pod, and it's there that Morsov starts to stir. And when we see him stir and start to sit up, first of all, the music starts to come back. But then we go back in the Nux car, and we get him actively rooting 
for Morsov. This whole rooting for Morsov thing, it feels very fanatical. It reminds oh, really? me. What? What's that for? They're in a cult. Of course it's fanatical. I know. Okay. So no, 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 I have more to say about that. Okay. So it reminds me that we are in a cult. We've been talking a lot about the war boys more in the context of a military unit. And there is a certain amount of honor that we are projecting onto this military unit. And I think we've been forgetting that they are part of a cult. And now we are remembering that they are part of a cult. And I kind of feel bad for Morsov that he is expected to get up and do something else great. Like, he already did something great. He tore the roof off a car. Yeah, he already saved a man's life. He tore the roof off of this car. How about some of you other guys get your butts in gear and do something? Because nobody else has done anything. Slit and Morsov are the only ones who have done anything. And Slit is relatively ineffective. You could argue that the guys in the other support vehicle, they took care of those two buggies. They blew up one and then it flipped into the other. Okay, that's true. Not I'll definitely give warp. credit for that. But I'm talking specifically about there are two guys right behind Morsov. Yeah. Just standing there watching this all happen. <laughs> I'm sure that they have participated. But right now, they're just standing there watching this all happen. Yeah, they're not out for the MVP or anything like that. Yeah, they didn't rush forward, grab a thunder stick, and jab it down into the buggy that's now vulnerable and who has a weapon that's no longer loaded. And then there's Morsov. What if he never gets up from his injuries? What if he tries and can't? They seem to expect him to do more, to give more. But what if he can't? Is that not glorious enough for them? I would say no, it would not be glorious enough for them. That is ridiculous. Well, it's also, you know, a kamikaze cult. So. But he was shot in the face and in the chest throat like area. He gets to die now. <laughs> He gets to get knocked down and die right now. To make it to Valhalla, I argue that he does not have to do the stunt he's about to do. I love the idea of someone with a checklist at the gates of Valhalla being like, okay, you did this, this, and this. Yeah, but you died like this and just balancing the scales and being all accountanty with it. Maybe with one of those green tinted visors or something like that. Right. But... You didn't spray your mouth and you didn't cry out, witness me. Right. So you got some subtracted points right there. I just, I think he already made it to Valhalla. I mean, what he's about to do is freaking awesome, but I think he already earned his spot. I think he's allowed to just sit there and die. Speaking about what he's about to do, though, we might as well get into it. Yeah, let's do. He pulls himself up into a somewhat seated position and from his belt, he produces a can of some kind. It's sort of a roundish can with a handle on it. And he starts spraying over his mouth. And we get a, another instance of sped up film here where he is coating his entire mouth area with this chrome paint. I labeled this a comma crazy ritual. This is what he is doing right before he is going to kamikaze himself. And I like that it's sped up because it turns that kamikaze into kamikaze mm. that we've already heard them refer themselves as. I know our notes are very different about this scene. So would you like to go first or do you want me to go first? The main thing I was focused on was what this paint does. And there is this thing that burnouts do in Australia called chroming, where they will basically just huff paint. But... 
the thing about huffing paint, and I went to the American Addiction Center's website for this, that the chemicals in the paint pass quickly into your system by inhaling them because you're getting those fumes directly into your lungs and the lungs pass that gases right into the bloodstream. So that's how it becomes effective so quickly. But what the website says that inhalants do, including paint, is that they have anesthetic effects. They slow down overall functioning of the body's system. And while the effects vary by dosage, basically the side effects are very similar to the effects of alcohol. So people could experience feelings of euphoria, slurred speech, issues with motor coordination, dizziness, and lightheadedness. The idea that I see is that they're getting high because it makes it easier to do something comma crazy. Makes it more of a euphoric experience. Exactly. Also lowers their inhibitions. Now, I was wondering about this specific concoction because it could just be regular spray paint or it could be something more. I was looking on Reddit. And someone posited that it is a drug of some kind. And they looked to a scene later in this movie, specifically one in week 22, where Nux is talking to Capable and he mentions something that sounds like the phrase night fume. And this person suspected that the chrome spray is that night fume and it has something in it that will give you that feeling of euphoria as you're about to commit yourself to doing something crazy, but it will also kill you because it has toxic properties. But in that scene specifically, he actually says night fevers instead of night fume. So we'll talk about that when we get to it. But I still like the idea that there is something else in the paint besides just regular aerosol and paint fumes, something to embolden the heart, so to speak. Mm, Yeah, I really like that idea. It makes a lot of sense. In poking around the subject, I also found an article written by Eric Davis on Movies.com related to an interview that he was doing with George Miller, and he asked about the spray specifically. And I think this is an article that you see pop up as reference in a bunch of different places. But he asked George Miller about the spray, and George Miller said that there was a very specific reason behind this specifically. And George Miller said that he saw a documentary where young Cambodian soldiers would go into war, and they had little jaded deities... And before they ran into battle, they put them in their mouths and just held them there with little straps. And so the idea of a pre-battle ritual stuck with Miller, and he translated that and morphed it into the chrome spray. Yeah, so you told me about that because I was researching some of the religious imagery in this, and you told me about that article. So I did a little bit of digging, and I'll give you the bad news first. Ultimately, I could not independently confirm that ritual of putting the deity in your mouth. But I did find the trailer for the documentary that he got that idea from. It's from a 1981 documentary called Frontline by David Bradbury, which was nominated for Best Documentary at the 1982 Academy Awards. And I wasn't able to find the documentary itself, just the trailer. But in the trailer, you can see one of the soldiers with something in his mouth. So I will post a link to that article so you can see at least the trailer for the documentary on the listener page. Cool. Some of the more familiar religious imagery invoked in this moment is from the Catholic Church. It seems to be a combination of anointing of the sick and viaticum. 
So what is viaticum? Viaticum is a term used for the Eucharist, also called Holy Communion. It is administered with or without anointing of the sick to a person who is dying, and it is part of the last rites. Oh, okay. According to Cardinal Javier Lozano Barragan, the Catholic tradition of giving the Eucharist to the dying ensures that instead of dying alone, they die with Christ who promises them eternal life. So that brings up this imagery of this person who is about to sacrifice themselves, this member of the cult of the V8, sprays himself with chrome and thus dies with the V8 instead of alone. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Which to believers is very, very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're going to go out, you want to make sure that the paint on your face, which I would argue represents Immortan Joe, that Joe goes with you to the gates of Valhalla to yes. vouch for you. You've got Joe's mark on you, which talking about marks, that goes from the spray paint to the brands to the fact that they're painted up to the whole Revelations Mark of the Beast thing. It's way more than I've certainly prepared for. <laughs> and he goes on to cry out, witness me, mm -hmm. which I usually think of in this context that he's crying out to his fellow rule boys, witness me. It's a call and response type of thing. He cries, witness me. They cry witness. It could also be he is crying out to Joe. He has connected himself to Joe with the chrome spray paint and is crying out to Joe to witness his deed. Mm. And I like how Ace back on the tanker notices Morsov and directs all of the other warboys to pay attention. Oh, is it Ace that does that? I saw that and thought it was a little bit of an odd move. But now that I know that it's Ace and I see signs that he takes this a little bit more seriously. Oh, absolutely. Than some of the others. I really like that motion of, hey, he is preparing to be witnessed. Let's witness him. Exactly. And Ace is the captain of this war rig. He's probably seen a lot of war boys sacrificing themselves over the years or months or however long he's been doing this. And so he fully understands the importance of being witnessed in this moment. Curiously, there is somebody in the crowd that cries out, no. Mm, I'm not quite sure who, because all of the war boys kind of blend together. <laughs> but there's probably a specific war boy somewhere on that tanger that has a certain affinity for Morsov. Maybe they're buddies. Maybe it's the guy that he saved when he did that crazy swing move. Oh, I like that. But whoever shouts it, they're pretty much drowned out by the other war boys just shouting witness. And I think with that, we're pretty much to the big moment of this minute where Morsov reaches down, grabs another thunderstick, and he raises himself to his feet. And not just standing on his feet, he perches himself up on the, I'm going to call it a guard railing, around the fuel pod. And he's standing up there just like a madman. And I can only imagine that the buzzards down in the car, if they can see what's going on here, they're probably freaking out. I expect so. This can't be their first run-in with war boys. I'm sure they have experienced this sort of kamikaze behavior before, so they know what's about to happen. I'm willing to bet that they're distracted by Nux. Which, good on Nux. That's an excellent strategic use of his skills and his equipment. Yeah, because if the driver in the buzzard car was paying attention to what was happening with Morsov, he would be 
Speeding up, slowing down, moving out of the way, moving out of range. If the warboy looks like he's going to jump at you, you're in a car. Hit the brakes, slow down, move out of the way. So there's got to be some explanation for why he's not moving. That's a good point. And I think it's because he's distracted. Nice. So Morsov lets out a mighty war cry. And I love how we get a tiny little shot of Max looking from Morsov to the buzzard car and putting two and two together and realizing what is just about to happen and how there's no way he could stop it. But despite Max's inability to protect himself, Morsov launches himself from the back of the fuel pod and soars through the air in wonderful slow motion towards the buzzard car. And this is a shot that was used in the trailers and the promos. And it's beautifully iconic. Mm -hmm. In the collection of Blu-ray bonus content, they talk about the stunts in one of the videos. I can't remember which one. But when they did this stunt, they had a giant gimbal set up on top of the tanker that was extending off the back of it. And the war boy that's jumping here, that stunt guy jumped in real life from the back of the fuel pod towards this car. And the way he was rigged up with harnesses and cables, he stopped falling, I'd say, a couple inches from the spikes on that buzzard car. It looked really close. Jeez, only a couple inches. That's exhilarating. I mean, for me, that's terrifying. But for the stuntman, that must be just a real kick in the pants. I mean, those guys are no slouches. Yeah. At all. And you've really got to hand it to George Miller and his stunt coordinators and the stuntmen themselves to pull all of this off. But also, you got to hand it to the digital artists for removing all of the safety equipment from the shot and making it look like this is just a guy flying through open air in order to blow himself up. This is one of those moments where everything just came together. The work of everybody just... They pulled out all the stops, and it shows. Mm. And I think this shot in particular is so indicative of how much extra effort that George Miller and his team put into this movie specifically. They had the technology, they had the time, they had the budget, and they just ramped everything up, Spinal Tap style, to 11. <laughs> if George Miller had been able to do something like this back in 1981... When he was making Road Warrior, oh, I fully believe he would have done so. But they just weren't working in that strata of funding. Right. It'd be very interesting to rewatch Road Warrior with an eye of, okay, how can they ramp up that stunt? Yeah. Keep the movie more or less the same, the same storyline, the same action pieces, but how can they ramp it up to 11? And I think that they absolutely could do that and that it would be amazing. Well, I hear what you're saying there, but I don't think they need to because we've got Fury Road. When we were talking about Road Warrior, we brought in Yuri and Travis and we did those compare and contrasts and there were just so many similarities. I don't know if I've said this before, but I kind of feel like Fury Road and The Force Awakens are kind of in the same boat as far as calling back to an earlier film and doing things similarly but differently. Yeah. I don't think Fury Road is as much of a direct parallel to Road Warrior, though. No. So don't get me wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is not beat for beat, 
but it does certainly have lots of parallels. Yeah. I would like to see Mad Max Wasteland do that same sort of thing with what we saw in Thunderdome. Like, bring Max back to another settlement. Have Max interacting with other people again on his terms. Because that's one of the things I really liked about Thunderdome is that Max was able to approach Auntie, well, approach the Collector at least, and start acting as an individual agent. Whereas here, he's locked into a course of action through misfortune, which is pretty much what happened at the end of Road Warrior. So I'll let George Miller do the nitty gritty work of (laughs) writing and directing and producing and all of that stuff. But I know I would like to see so much more from this series. But getting back into the minute proper, because as we've said before, this shot is amazing. It ends with a fiery explosion as Morsov connects with that buzzard car and the thing completely disintegrates. One thing that really stands out, though, in the wide shot is the way that Morsov, while he's diving through the air, is not the only one that's directly attacking the buzzard car. No, Slit simultaneously throws a thunder stick. Mm. And this does feel like a stealing glory moment. Oh, absolutely. I helped. It's shake and bake. And I helped. (laughs) But the thing that really gets me about this explosion and Slit's participation in it is that the explosion happens. Nux, some war boys, they cry out witness. They are acknowledging the glory of Morsov's death. And then Slit comes in with mediocre Morsov. He's such a troll. Like, if the world hadn't ended, Slit would be sitting in a coffee shop somewhere on his phone, just being a jerk on the internet because he gets such a kick out of it. Like, that's the kind of person that Slit strikes me as. But it's also pretty impressive that Max isn't a pincushion right now because there was an incredible amount of shrapnel that came off of that car when it exploded. Yeah, that was incredibly dangerous for everybody nearby. Yeah. Including Nux and Slit. You think about hand grenades, (laughs) which, I mean, most people don't do on a daily basis. (laughs) But the major danger, major danger, from a hand grenade is not so much the explosion and the pressure wave that it causes, but the shrapnel that's thrown out from the explosion. That's why those little pineapple looking things are called fragmentation grenades, because the explosion goes off in the middle and it sends chunks of metal everywhere. And that's where you really get ripped up. And that's exactly what should be happening with this buzzard car. But I'm assuming that Max is using his fairy powers to give some sort of magical force field to deflect all of those pieces. The trouble with the fairy princess theory is that if it's true, he doesn't use it enough. (laughs) He has a blood bag strapped to the front of a war vehicle, and now he chooses to protect himself? Maybe he's got a limited supply of fairy powers, and so he only needs to bust them out when they're absolutely necessary. When it comes to magic, if you don't have a long rest, you don't get to refill your spell slots. And so if he's only got one or two instances where he can divinely protect himself, he's got to be very specific. He probably used up one of his divine protections when his interceptor flipped and rolled to keep him from just turning into a pile of pudding. (laughs) 
And so now it's happening again to keep him from just becoming a human pincushion. He would not make a very good blood bag if he was full of holes, that's for sure. Suppose not. (laughs) Of course, with this buzzard car being out of the way, we're not completely out of danger because the buzzard excavator is still there and it's quickly accelerating along the war rig's left side. And so Furiosa has to refocus everybody because the war boys are shouting about witness. Ace is tenting his hands and bowing his head because he's got a little bit of reverence for what just happened. But Furiosa is all business because there's still a gigantic vehicle bearing down on them. And so she pulls on the line and gives the air horn a few more long blasts. Like that jump was cool, but let's focus up. (laughs) The last time she used her horn, we assumed that it was code. Do you think this is still code? She lets out a few of them in this minute. And I think it's just a call to action. I don't think it's necessarily a specific Game of Thrones style. This is what's happening sort of alarm. Okay. At least that's what I think. So that pretty much brings us to the end of minute 23. We're going to be back on Friday. The smaller buzzard cars have pretty much been handled at this point. So now we can focus on the excavator like Furiosa wants us to. And frankly, it's not a moment too soon because it's in prime striking distance to start tearing the war rig apart. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 23 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.